0: They say it takes a village to raise a child, but how many people does it take to make one? Two has been the answer for a very long time. Even with the dawns of IVF and single-sex couples, families have only ever needed an egg from a woman and a sperm from a man. But that may not be good enough for some couples affected by a certain debilitating disease. To save parents passing this disease on to their child through their genes, researchers at Newcastle University have developed a daring new technique. The only catch is, it produces embryos that contain DNA from three people.
1: Very slowly, very slowly, we began to build up a picture that actually we could pro- perform this pronuclear transfer on these embryos. I mean, that was very encouraging and we published it in Nature and it gave us a sort of proof of concept, it's, it's technically feasible and human.
0: I'm Adam Smith. Welcome to Pod Academy. You just heard from Professor Mary Herbert at the top there, who's part of the research team at Newcastle. The therapy she's working on is not yet proven in humans, or available for patients. Because it raises so many ethical questions, the research in Newcastle is undergoing a public consultation process right now to help the health secretary decide whether to allow a change in the law so that the researchers can begin testing it in humans. The consultation asks us questions about the limits of scientific research, how far we'll go, and the interaction between science and family life. As Professor Martin Richards, who studies families and how reproductive technologies have shaped them, explains.
2: There are clearly a set of issues, I think, that the standards if we look at other kinds of acidity reproduction that are problematic.
0: I've spent some time with both Mary and Martin to hear about how the Newcastle technique was developed and what the history of the family tells us about whether we'll adopt it. First, let's look at the disease that, it is hoped, could be stamped out by this science. Inside almost every cell in your body are tiny little things that generate energy. They're called mitochondria, and they're often referred to as the batteries of the cells. Mitochondria hold a little bit of DNA, just a handful of genes, 37 in fact. The vast majority of your DNA, up to 30,000 genes, is held elsewhere in the cell, in the nucleus. Now, each cell nucleus contains 99% of your DNA. Half of it comes from your father and half from your mother. This nuclear DNA contains the genes that determine everything about you, from whether you're tall or short, or whether you're likely to develop breast cancer. Your mitochondria contain only 0.1% of your overall genetic material, and all it does is help them to make the proteins they need so your cells can always have enough energy. Now, while the vast majority of your cell's DNA comes from both your parents, the DNA in mitochondria comes only from your mother. For some people, the DNA in their mitochondria is damaged, which can lead to disorders. They can cause miscarriage or stillbirth. Some babies born with mitochondrial disease live only for a few days. Others, they struggle on for months, or maybe even years. The symptoms, and the age at which they become apparent, vary widely between patients. And they can affect single organs, for example, causing blindness or heart failure, or the whole body. But because mitochondria are not part of the all-important cell nucleus, researchers at Newcastle have been making human embryos with mitochondria from a third party, but not implanting these into mothers yet they make an embryo with the DNA from the mum and dad that will make a nucleus and the mitochondria from another female. This means that faulty mitochondria from the mum wouldn't be passed on to the offspring. The embryo could develop normally into a fetus and still inherit 99.9% of its DNA from its mum and dad, everything it needs to determine its eye colour and all the usual things we inherit from our parents. But its mitochondria would contain a little bit of genetic material from another person. Here's Mary on a very long, drawn-out
1: experiment. I was rather surprised it worked because the pronuclei are in the human are enormous structures. They're like 30 microns diameter. You know, you've, you're dealing with big pipettes and so on, but we worked with it. It took, it took quite a bit of doing, and our early results were not that promising.
0: Those of us who are grappling with the ethics are weighing up the fact among others, that if the treatment were given the green light, the mitochondrial DNA from the second woman would be passed on to the resulting child into the next generation, if the child was female, because remember that mitochondria are only passed on through the mother. It's very hard to guess what the consequences of this would be generations and generations down the line. It's that where the law stands. You cannot alter the genetic structure of a cell while it is part of the embryo. This meant that the HFEA originally did not even approve of the basic research Mary and her colleague, Professor Doug Turnbull, wanted to do. Application
1: ...because every, pro- license, every research project involving embryos has to be licensed by the HFEA. When we put in the re- research application, they turned it down, we appealed, they turned it down again, and then we appealed to the authority, and Doug Turnbull and I were about to make a trip to London with a bundle we'd been sent by the HFEA when we realised actually the HFEA now had two barristers <laughs> <laughs> there, <laughs> there, So we sort of said, well, maybe, maybe, maybe we can we postpone this? Maybe. So um, we, we. So
0: you, you didn't have any lawyers. No. You were just no, going we to argue we were just going yourself. To, to
1: argue our case. You know, yeah. what, did, what does, what does genetic structure mean? And because yeah. genetic structure has no meaning in biology. That's I mean, the
0: term in the legislation. Yeah, yeah. Right.
1: Yeah. I, after that appeal to the authority, they allowed us to do it. And my understanding, it was really came down to weasel words. Was that They agreed that that the genetic structure of the embryo was changed in that it contained a genome it didn't have before, but that we didn't alter it.
0: (laughs) So that gave the initial go-ahead to the first stage in the research. And now, a few years on, Mary and her colleagues are keen to move the project on and see whether the embryos they produce can be implanted into mothers and lead to pregnancies. But first, they've got to win the support of the public through this consultation. Then the Secretary of State for Health. Currently, Jeremy Hunt who will have to decide whether to make the required change in the law.
1: The research and the regulatory sort of process is moving in parallel. So, I hope that these discussions and the public consultation will, you know, encourage the Secretary of State to have this debated in Parliament and allow this in principle to be permitted as a, clinic, as a, as a clinical treatment. And then it's up to the regulator, I believe, to, 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 to look at the evidence that we produce.
0: You can see how this one piece of research shines a light on the layers on layers of interests and regulations and legislation which are all up for discussion at the moment of course there are researchers who study all these sorts of conversations and the way that public attitudes to reproductive techniques change over time one such person is martin richards emeritus professor of family research at the university of cambridge martin has spent decades Looking at family relationships and how they change, so I asked him how he expects the public to view the new techniques to thwart mitochondrial disease.
2: We need to understand what this would all mean to the various people are concerned in terms of the same kinds of things that we ask questions about if this was straight egg donation um, there are questions about how we should treat these donors. I mean should we say this woman's given an egg for this kind of treatment should we treat her as if that egg had been used directly in IVF which would mean that uh, the donation would not be anonymous that when the child grew up they would have access to the information including the name or the fact that The whole egg is not being used, and in fact the nucleus, which some people would see as, that's after all where the genes are, which in one sense make us who we are, but a lot of other things are needed for that too. But should that make a difference? Should we then say, well, yes, she's not really a reproductive donor.
0: Before the research can continue into humans, now the government wants to know how you feel about this. On the 14th of September, the Department of Health launched a consultation through the Human Fertilisation and Embryology Authority, the HFEA, to collect public opinion on this technique. Gene watchdog opens door to fertility technique that gives children three parents, screamed the Daily Mail headline. Three people, one baby, public consultation begins, said the BBC. The Guardian called it genetic modification before changing its story when it was pointed out to editors, that the technique did not amount to fiddling with the actual genes inside a cell these headlines show just how controversial and political this scientific research is i asked professor mary herbert how it feels to be subject to such public scrutiny
1: i think the public consultation is really interesting actually because it's a very difficult these are very difficult concepts and i think the media coverage has been very good and people in general i think have they, they, they can grasp it um, and it's it's a, been a, a good exercise in, in, in public engagement, I think, because one hopes they can explain it in a way that people can get their heads around, and 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 then form form a view. And and my my dealing with the public on this, because I was involved in another sort of sounding board organised by the HFEA, and it was very heartening and very encouraging that. You know, people really wanted to understand, were able then, once they had sufficient information, to formulate a view. That's what it seemed to me. Mm-hmm. So it's, I don't think it's sensationalist. I know we've had all the complaints about the headlines and so on, which are confusing. I mean, the three-parent-baby thing is very confusing, but um, even to people who know some science. But, you know, overall, I think the coverage has been, has been excellent. Mm-hmm. People are getting a grasp.
0: No doubt Martin and colleagues will be poring over the HFEA consultation response once it's published early next year. It will, after all, be the latest public attitude work on the cutting edge of assisted reproductive technology. But there has already been plenty of research done on technologies available today, such as IVF and donor insemination.
2: In fact, one of the things that came out of that work pretty early on is, in fact, most children are not told that they're born through donor gamers Really? Did did
0: that surprise you?
2: It didn't surprise me because it it, it used to be the practice now uh, in fact not so long back um, the practice has actually removed anonymity so Mm. now when children reach adulthood they're able to ask not only for details about their donor but um, the name Mm. but um, Yes, I had assumed, and I think other people had assumed, that um, there were reasons in the past, particularly when the the legal situation wasn't clear, and that the child would technically be illegitimate. Um, Those were removed. Um, Another issue which was raised about secrecy was that men wouldn't wish to know, have their infertility sort of publicised, so that needed to be a secret. Mm
0: I wondered whether you could tell us a little bit about the nuts and bolts of uh, when you're doing research in this area.
2: Depends what the issue is. Let's give you an example of one project uh, some of my colleagues have been engaged in. In the USA there's a website where donor children, donor parents and donors can sign up because they're interested in making contact with each other. Now, lots of interest in why are people doing that, what they hope to get out of it, what happens, do they actually get to meet donors and so on. And that was done by um, collaboration with the people who ran this website for matching and they as it were posted something on the website asking if people would be willing to um, be interviewed Opening questionnaires. Most of the people who sign up on that website aren't successful in any of their searches. Um, I mean, they may be in the future, but they haven't as yet been. So the number who've actually made contact is quite small. Some of the main data there is really what one might call straightforward description. Um, asking people why were they searching. Uh, I mean want information, do they want to meet, mm. etc. And that, that was done through questionnaires which basically set out a number of possibilities. Mm. What is interesting about the results, I mean it did show something that wasn't what it, at least everyone expected, is that most of the searching in fact was done by parents who have donor children but typically they were quite young and Many of them were as, if not more, interested in finding donor siblings mm. than they were finding the donor. I think it was certainly a surprise that it, that was so important. I mean, mm. people did know, I mean, people doing the research knew there were cases mm. where people had been very interested in mm. trying to find. You know, the other children of the same donor.
0: Presumably sometimes there's th- there are um, hundreds of... Si- well, not maybe hundreds, but lots and lots of siblings, more than what we might think of in a, in a very conventional family, at least.
2: Indeed. I mean, in theory, there is regulation of the number. Mm. Um, in the States, the regulation really has... Uh, it's a kind of professional recommendation. Mm. I mean, in Britain, we have... Um, rather tighter regulation, but in the study we found, or the people who did it found some very big collections, I mean 50 plus. I mean there'd already been actually a press story about a man who got called the god of sperm, who claims to have 500 children.
0: Through donation?
2: Through donation.
0: And is there any merit in his claim?
2: It's very hard to say. I mean his story is that he thought he was donating for research and his sperm wasn't being used reproductively. It's very hard to verify.
0: The god of sperm may have gone to the press with his story and we all may be consulted on our thoughts on the potential mitochondrial disease therapy but reproductive technologies were not always talked about so openly. Martin's historical research has spotted cases from over a century ago when these treatments were still very much behind closed doors.
2: In fact the earliest use yeah. of insemination was using husband sperm um, yeah. and there was quite a wide belief that a certain amount of female infertility was because the sperm couldn't reach uh, the uterus so that became I'm talking now sort of early 19th century, a bit earlier. That was quite a widely used treatment to get sperm from the husband and to inseminate it when the wife was having problems in conceiving. Mm-hmm. Um, didn't actually seem to be very successful, but it didn't stop people trying. And, you know, it seemed sort of a reasonable thing to do. Mm-hmm. But in fact, as early as the 1880s, the Pope condemned it on the ground basically that it was unnatural and well there was a concern then and that continues that the sperm was produced by masturbation and that that was regarded as a sin.
0: In Britain the practice of assisted reproduction grew up in the late 1930s when infertility clinics opened and offered these kinds of treatment but they were not popular even in the medical profession.
2: There was for example the first paper in the British Medical Journal describing the practice, which is in the 1940s, got a huge correspondence in the medical journal from other doctors saying, with varying degrees of politeness, basically this was outrageous and should be stopped. Not quite all of them, but broadly hostile.
0: So was it very difficult if you wanted to have this treatment to find a doctor who would help you?
2: Yes, I mean, there were very few people at least doing it in clinics. Um, it's quite possible there was other uh, um, doctors offering it, as it were, sort of privately. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But, yes, it probably would be quite difficult. But, I mean, there were other people. Mary Stopes, the sex guru, as it were, um, she she had a large correspondence with people who'd write... she was a kind of agony aunt for sexual problems and she was writing letters to people from what she claims about the uh, early 1920s if not a little earlier suggesting that if they were having problems conceiving as she put it they should avoid expensive doctors and she gave them very clear instructions about how the husband should get hold of a friend and how you could collect the sperm, and how you could inseminate yourself.
0: Have you found any primary source material, any accounts from the people who did this?
2: Not quite that. Mm. I mean, there are some letters to Mary Stopes about people who've used it successfully. Mm. But no, we, we have the accounts from the clinicians about what they were doing. But the whole thing was shrouded in secrecy.
0: Brits may be famous for their rather Victorian reserve when it comes to talking about these things. No assisted reproduction, please. We're British. But one thing we're not prudish about is research. As this consultation into mitochondrial disease treatment shows, we're keen to have research and the ethical implications of it discussed very openly. It's a way for us all to get to decide the course of science and medicine. Most people I've spoken to about this consultation expect the public to be broadly supportive of the techniques. So I asked Mary Herbert what the next stage in her work would be if she got the go-ahead from the health secretary next year. She told me that the research would inch forward, starting with the blastocysts they produced. Blastocysts are very early stage embryos.
1: The next stage of the research would be for us to satisfy ourselves first that we had sufficient evidence here that this was worth going for in terms of the number of blastocysts we can produce. Because obviously if they can't, the blastocyst is an important developmental milestone because if they can't become blastocysts, they they're not likely to implant. So that's my, my first question. You know, is it likely to be effective? Is it likely to give us pregnancies? And then the next thing would be, are these blastocysts normal? and normal, we will look at a range of parameters. I mean, part of the problem is that we don't really know what normal is for a human blastocysts, but we've got unmanipulated blastocysts to look at, and I think in the course of this research, we will also uncover a great deal of new knowledge about early embryonic development.
0: So there would still be a lot of research to be done, even if it were given the green light, before it would be used in patients?
1: It depends on timing, obviously. I mean, we aspire to be, have this, you know, have the answer within five years. But you can't, you know, biology, we're dealing with biological system here and with the donation of eggs. And it's a bit, you know, there are always unforeseen challenges.
0: Remember, the government needs you to say how you feel about this research via www.hfea.gov.uk. To read a transcript of this podcast or find links to further information, including the consultation, visit podacademy.org or tweet us at podacademy.